Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 110, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, ways teaching the arts can strengthen students' social-emotional muscles. And has a state been delaying the first day of school because of a theme park? Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators with story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, how a nonprofit is advising students when applying to colleges, but they're not face to face. It's all done remotely. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, is your summer almost over? Like, when do you guys go back? It's 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 getting late in July here. Um, yeah, we're we're back as of August first. We're back. Okay, so but you, but you, that's like uh, what's the one? Yeah, you basically got like a week and a half. Yeah. So teachers go back um, first, obviously, and then um, and then the kids come in. So we have like a, some professional development things and stuff like that, and then district wide meetings, and then and then come the kids. I've got I'm gonna save it for later in the show, but my my story today that I'm talking about in the teachers lounge is actually about a state that has delayed the opening of school until after Labor Day because of an amusement park and they've been doing this for decades and that's about to change so wow so stay tuned (laughs) stay tuned for that one why don't you tell us what you got in the uh, teacher's lounge today a great little article out of education week about the arts which i you know certainly can dive into um and about the importance and the opportunity i should say to to kind of twine emotional and social skills into the arts curriculum. Um, So, of course, it's always, you know, a big debate of, oh, do we really need the music and art classes and the dance classes? Do we really need those things? Um, And I think a lot of people, you know, just point blank say, absolutely, those things are important. But, of course, as you go higher and higher, maybe when they're trying to figure out dollars spent, it looks less and less important. Um, there's some teachers that they highlight in this article that are not just teaching art or just teaching music. They're actually setting aside classroom time for discussions um, that that point out, you know, certain emotional and social skills that need to be fostered that we constantly hear. Like on this show, we constantly ask what what are we not teaching in schools that we need to be teaching? And one of the things that, I mean, almost always comes up is, you know, social skills, real real interactions with people and, you know, and how to, you know, how to express yourself in an, in an okay way that is not going to turn the other people off to what so, you're trying so to say. If I'm hearing you right, like this, this article is basically arguing that, um, you know, it's a little tougher to teach social emotional skills in math class, but, Absolutely. but in the arts, like there's a lot of opportunities there is. to seize upon them. Yes. And I mean, and I just nodded my head reading the entire article because, 
um, for years. I, you know, there's there's some some people that'll joke that say, you know, Miss Lissa teaches life lessons in those classes. She's not teaching art; she's teaching life lessons. That's cool. And I do. I mean, it's it comes up all the time. It comes up all the time because, especially in the art classroom, you know, children are being creative, so they're their minds are just firing, you know, they're excited, they're happy, they're relaxed, you know, Mm -hmm. so that they just start talking. So a lot of times if you just listen, you know, you'll hear some things that they're saying that you can step in to either correct if they're saying something that's not kind, that that you're not going to hear on the playground when they're running around. You're not, you're not going to be right there running with them to hear what they just said, but you hear it in, in, in the classroom. And then also just how they can express, um, you know, or, or, or when not to express, like maybe you don't care for somebody else's piece, but you know, they learn in the art setting, the value of mm, what that feels like on the other side. So, so, so like how often do you find yourself like, sometimes I'll like hear some, like a child say something and I'm not good at this. Like I'm not good at interjecting and being like, Hey, that wasn't really nice. Like, I bet you're great <laughs> at that. Right. Like, do you do that like on a daily basis? Well, I, yes. I mean, yesterday uh, I had some leftover art supplies um, in from from one of my art camps. So I decided for the neighborhood kids that I was just going to set up a little tent in my driveway and let all the neighborhood kids, you know, my kids are older. So to let all these younger ones just wheel up on their bikes, we're going to make some slime and make some shaving cream art and do some stuff. And then they get to take it home. It was just kind of like a impromptu art street party that we did nice. with about 20 kids. Well, there was there was a, a young lady that um, a, a boy was there, and I think she maybe had a crush on the boy. You know, that was very clear that mm-hmm. she thought he was cute. But what she did was, to, I heard, as I was scraping off the shaving cream of her art, you know, I become invisible, and this happens almost in every art class. The te- I fade, mm-hmm. the kids talk, and I just hear... Um, anyway, she she turned to the other girl and said, "Okay, so let's go over there and let's just say to him, I hate you." And wow. <laughs> I, you know, I'm sitting there scraping off the shaving cream, and I I look up and said, "Oh no 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 no, we're not going to say that. That's not a nice thing to say." Nor and is I it said, a good strategy, right? And I said, I was like, you know, the whole reason we're doing this is art brings people together. So. So he's here because we're doing art. So if you're glad that he's here, then you want to go say something like, hey, what colors are you going to choose? What color slime are you going to make? You want to mm-hmm. you want to open a conversation because you really are kind of glad he's here. Because I had just heard them saying, you know, which one do you think is cute or whatever. And I don't really know these kids. You know, in fact, my... Um, one of my neighbors told me that they call me the the paint lady, so which kind of sounds creepy. And so, anyway, <laughs> crazy, crazy paint lady. Yeah, like, crazy I don't know if they said crazy, but <laughs> they just said the paint lady. But anyway, um, so things like that happen all the time. And yes, you have to step in. You have to step in. It's uncomfortable for the adult, but you, if you don't, because you know what's happening. You know that when a boy goes and slugs a girl. That he really is just trying to play with her. He just yeah. doesn't know, know how we, to play. I don't know why we do that. That's so weird. Yes. And so you as adults know, so you have to step in. And there are so many times in 
in the the classroom, especially within the arts, like in a music class, the, in the in the article, a music teacher near Chicago, she says that you know at the beginning of the year, it's really hard in choral class to get them to really like, hey, you're in this class, or you're in this choral group because you're supposed to sing out, but there are times that you want to be you know, the, the focus is on you, but then there's also times that you need to blend in with the group. And so she's able to teach those dynamics of you want to make sure that you're with the group and not one voice is more than another, or it messes up our sound. But then she says when they branch out to where they have to sing out by themselves, that a lot of them will laugh, you know, or make jokes. And then she stops the class and points out, you guys are laughing at yourself and laughing at each other's, not because this is funny. You're laughing because this is scary. This right. is, you know, and so she's teaching them, like, right. this is what this means to you, like, recognize this feeling. And they're not able to do that in regular class. I think in literature class, you're able to really talk about what happened in the book and talk about how that feels to you. Like, there's some great discussions that can be had in literature, you know, but that's about it, you know. I mean, so many other classes now, even in history, they're just memorizing facts and then spitting them back out on a test. There's, they, you know, they've, they've even gotten away from discussions, mm-hmm. um, mostly because they're too, they're too nervous for what the discussions might bring well, up. That was one so, of our one of our guests in the um, pop quiz that he said, "I, I w- wish schools would be more controversial, yeah, uh, you know, and allow that." And um, I think he's right. Well, and yeah. kids are just by nature controversial. I mean, yeah, but all I'm the time about like you politics have politics and history oh, absolutely. and stuff like right. that. Right. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying is controversy will come up anyway, just among, like yesterday, you know, I'm going to go tell that boy, I hate you. <laughs> like, you know, right. to where you're like, no, no, no. So, I mean, there's, there's lots of opportunities. And I just think, of course, this is obviously, this article is meant to highlight, hey, the arts are valuable and they are. But I also think it's important. It, it just sparks a good discussion of, you know, everybody's got to stop and help children understand either what they're feeling or why they're saying what they're saying or why they are doing what they're doing because nobody else is. They're not getting it at home, sadly, and they're not really getting it at school, whereas maybe that used to be a part of school. Like maybe... Maybe there used to be a time to share and talk about things that are bothering you and, you know, but there's, that's gone now. There's no time. There's no time. So you can build that time in to the arts. arts. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a really good argument for the arts. Um, You know, so often like when, you know, the budgets get tight and they want to cut, um, you know, music or art or or whatever. um, This is a different argument than just like, well, there's kids that could be really good at art or there's kids that could be really good at music. It's more like anybody will grow when practicing the arts because they're going to grow to be better people, better people, nicer people, working groups better yep. and so forth. And, and I think it's a good perspective. And also I, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong here, this is a good reminder. If you teach the arts already to make sure you're working those emotional and social skills into your lessons. Absolutely. I mean, I remember a couple of episodes back I was asking for, I wish there was short little videos that, you know, I could play at the beginning of my 
art lessons that are just kind of like, you know, like when we grew up, the one that was like, the more you know, like those little things, you know, to where you could play it and then have a quick little discussion and then get into today's art lesson, just because it's a way to teach social skills and thoughtfulness and compassion that sometimes is getting more and more lost. And especially we just spoke a week or so ago about you know, on online and, and, you know, people on social media and, and teaching the internet classrooms and that kind of thing. But, you know, the more they isolate away and the more they hide behind being able to just say things that are not really attached, like there's not a string from their words to their heart, you know, we've got to do a better job in schools and possibly in the arts of showing them that no, 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 your thoughts are attached to your heart, your words are attached to your heart, mm-hmm. and if they're not, there's a problem. It's good stuff. The um, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there is an interesting story out of the state of Virginia, and um, this is where I grew up. And I remember um, when I was in school in the '80s and the '90s, uh, my brother would tell me that the reason we would always start school late in the year because we never started till after Labor Day. Um, whereas here in the South, we start in early August, but the reason had to do with the fact that the legislators were working with King's Dominion Amusement Park, which is a big amusement park up in Northern Virginia to, um, make sure that families and kids had off all the way through Labor Day to go to the park. Oh, wow. And I, my brother would tell me that. And I was like, oh, that's silly. Like, I just like, <laughs> no, right. they would never like dictate to schools, you know, when they could start school because of an amusement park. Right. Turns out that is the case. That's true. That is true. And it huh. is actually it's it's the so-called King's Dominion law. But apparently ever since the 80s, Virginia public schools had to open after Labor Day unless they qualified for waivers due to significant number of snow days in preceding years. And apparently it had to do with the fact of the lobbying group of companies like King's Dominion, which is now owned by Paramount, I think, um, to make sure that these kids were out of school so they could continue to pull on that revenue in the later part of summer. First off, I'll get to where I'm going with this, but is that not ridiculous? It is ridiculous, but they also, they lose spring break, right? Because I looked into- No, no, we still had spring break. Well, no, no, no. I mean mean these amusement parks. Because I looked into going to an amusement park on our spring break and that up north, but those amusement parks are closed, right, because it's too cold. So maybe they feel like, you know, whereas the South has- ability to go to amusement parks in, all year yeah then yeah. they feel like hey wait you well, need to help true. us but that i mean yeah wow <laughs> this is true you're, you're right like that probably is the case they have a smaller window that they're open but yeah to get to to go to schools the fact that an amusement park is lobbying the state legislators and the legislators are then in yeah. turn putting a law in place preventing schools from opening when they would like to or when they feel like it's the right time wow I guess that, I always thought it had to, to do with heat and things like that. It was cheaper to to cool the schools and things like that. I had no idea that it could be from other forces. I'm sure that that's maybe what they said was because I have heard, you know, oh, yeah, we start later because it's just so hot. August is such a hot month that 
Yeah. You but, know, we we don't cool the schools and buses and stuff during August. So that's why our state starts later. I've always I, heard that. I wouldn't be surprised if like states like Ohio, which also have big amusement parks, you know, have similar laws in place because they, they do have to close later in the year. Like you said, there's that window in the summer. Hmm. But um, the reason this has kind of come to light is because the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, just signed a bill that would allow the schools to open up two weeks before Labor Day. As long as they give the students a four-day Labor Day weekend holiday. But like, so it still has an effect, but they are starting to give a little bit. Wow. And um, apparently, you know, these schools are also going to have to like make a case for like why they need to open up early. Um, huh. Yeah. So That is crazy. It is crazy. And, you know, I, I didn't graduate until I think my graduation date was like June 16th or June 21st or so. It was mid-June. Um, so it you know, pushes everything back well into the summer because of that later start. And I just hadn't, I feel like, I feel, um, I don't want to say cheated, but I feel like manipulated by big business. You know what I mean? My whole life. I, I, yeah. But then side note, you absolutely love amusement parks. Oh, I mean, so. I, had, I, had a, I had a season pass to King's Dominion. But like <laughs> when I was a junior and senior, we would, we would seriously like drive there. Cause it wasn't but like an hour away. And it was awesome going as a junior or senior high school without parents to an amusement park. <laughs> that was good times. But I still, I still like, there, there needs to be a line somewhere. And I don't feel like King's Dominion amusement park should dictate an entire state's <laughs> schooling. But apparently, that's where we've been for the past several decades, and I now have proof. Are you ready for the Bright Idea? Yes. Our guests in today's Bright Idea segment are part of an engine behind College Point. College Point is a virtual advising program that helps top students apply to colleges, find scholarships, and navigate the financial aid process for free. Bryden Sweeney Taylor and Alicia Rashid are here to tell us more about how College Point can help students in underserved communities around the country. Bryden and Alicia, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us, Nick. We actually talked about this program, and and I didn't do it probably as eloquently as you're going to, but we talked about it on a previous show, like three or four shows back. And we have, I know we have a lot of listeners in, say, like rural communities around the country. And that's not to say that they don't have incredible students there, but sometimes they may not have the, the support system to really get them into the best schools in the country that they deserve to be in. Is, am I understanding your mission? Is that what you all do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, that is what we do. College Point's mission is to increase the number of high-achieving, low- and moderate-income high school students who are applying to, enrolling in, and ultimately graduating from top-performing colleges and universities across the country. So these are students who have the grades and scores to go on to great schools. But what the research has shown us is that the majority of these students historically have not even applied to the kinds of places that they're qualified to attend. And so our goal is to support them through the college application process, the financial aid process, and help them end up at well-matched fit uh, institutions that um, are a, a good match and fit for their achievement levels, for their interests, and put them on trajectories for lifelong success. And so the next obvious question is, how do you do that? Yeah, so with that, we provide um, free virtual college advising. And so what that means is we have an advisor that matches with every student that signs up and is eligible for the program. And they then meet with the student um, kind of however they would like to in a virtual manner. So whether it's by text, whether it's emails, phone calls, video chats, um, advisors and students get to meet 
um, how, as often as they would like. So that can be once a month, it could be once a week, it can be once a day, um, really depending on how much support the student requests during the advising relationship. Um, and then they continue that throughout their, they start in their junior uh, year of high school and then continue throughout their senior year all the way up until they matriculate um, into college. And at that point, a lot of our advisors have talked about still working with students and kind of maintaining that relationship just because of how, um, how important that relationship had developed throughout the school year. Bryden, if you, if you can tell me, please, do you know of any specific examples that really stick out in your mind where, where you guys just had a huge win? You had a student who you know, was so deserving and you guys were able to, to help make that connection with a, a university. Sure. Um, I think we have tons of examples uh, that fall into that camp, but one that comes to mind um, is a student uh, who um, is from uh, Texas, uh, who in thinking about her trajectory to to college, really sort of didn't know what her options were, was thinking that she would likely go to school um, somewhere in Texas and was on a road trip um, to the East Coast with her mother and as part of the process uh, stopped by some schools in North Carolina. One of those schools um, was Duke University and um, being on that campus, she fell um, in love with that uh, institution, um, just spending that little bit of time there. But then the next big question was, okay, here is this place, it's far from home. Um, It's unlike any college that I'm familiar with how could I end up here? And working with her college point advisor, sort of every step of the process, thinking about how to put Duke on her list, but what would be a um, well-balanced list of schools with uh, a number of reach schools like Duke, a number of match schools that um, were places that she was had a good chance of um, being a match at, and a couple couple of likely schools that would be um, places that uh, would be good places to end up if um, those reaches or matches didn't work out. Uh, she created that list. She worked on personal statements um, with her uh, college advisor, um, with her college point advisor, through the process, um, completed um, all of the financial aid um, forms, FAFSA, CSS, um, and uh, and then was lucky enough um, to be accepted at Duke based on her achievements and, and hard work and just had an advisor through every step of the process working with her uh, along the way. And it's that kind of story that we hear time and time again about students who um, may not really know what their options are, what are schools that are a good match for them. And even if there is a school that they're interested in, not having a good sense of how they would even begin to navigate the process um, students who have misconceptions about the cost of college, particularly um, at these top performing schools, at um, these institutions with a lot of resources to be able to dedicate to low and moderate income students. And yet students are just seeing the sticker price um, of those institutions. And um, often that's more than their family makes in a year. And so how could they um, ever end up at a place like that? Uh, but on average, um, at uh, the top performing institution students, um, will pay less to go to one of those institutions than they would to an open access four-year institution based on the financial aid that is available. So 
um, being able to dispel those sort of misconceptions and um, give students the knowledge that they need in order to make informed choices um, on the financial front. And then I think potentially most importantly is really models of other um, young people um, from similar backgrounds who've made that transition to top schools successfully. Um, and so, so many of our advisors have been through the process um, just like uh, the high school students that they're working with. Um, and so they know the ropes um, and they can, uh, they can say, I've been there, I've struggled through this, just like what you're going through right now. Um, and that support, that connection, and that sense of there are other people like me um, who have been in my shoes not so long ago who are now helping me um, figure out uh, how to end up at a school that is the best match and fit for me. I think is one of the most powerful aspects of the work that we do. Help me understand how the relationship works. If, if I'm a student and I'm looking for help and I stumble across your website, can I just contact you or does this relationship have to go through my school? And when I say my school, my high school. Yeah, it's a great question. And Alicia, feel free to jump in here. Um, but the way that we do the vast majority of our recruitment is actually through active outreach and sort of the way that Alicia was describing. So we've partnered with the college board and ACT to identify students who fit um, the profile of student that we feel we're best positioned to support. And so these are students scoring in the 90th percentile or higher on a standardized test who have a 3.5 GPA or higher and come from the bottom half of the income distribution. So coming from families making $80,000 or less per year. Um, and we do all kinds of outreach to the students. If one of those students, to, to your question, Nick, were to stumble across the website um, and meet those criteria, then they can sign up right online um, and submit um, a little bit of personal information about themselves. Um, and then we can determine whether or not they're eligible uh, to, to match with an advisor. So certainly that's uh, another mechanism by which students um, are engaging with an advisor from there, students are assigned um, to an individual advisor at one of our four partner organizations. So um, Alicia and I play a role in the core team, the core College Point team, but we're really, and the foundation of our work is partnerships with four college access organizations. So College Advising Corps, College Possible, Matriculate, and Scholar Match. Um, and across those four organizations, um, there are about 60 full-time advisors and about 600 part-time volunteer advisors uh, who are matched with students um, and working with them across the country. So this year, we'll work with 12,000 students um, who fit those criteria and make those individual matches. Um, and then an advisor will uh, connect with the student, whether that's by text message, telephone, email, um, that initial outreach happens. And then um, to Alicia's point, they work together. They sort of find a rhythm, um, a medium that makes the most sense for the student and for the advisor. Um, and so it's everything from um, telephone conversations and email exchanges to video chat, document sharing, um, text messaging, really um, sort of whatever kind of support and through whatever medium um, is most effective for that particular relationship and supporting the student 
through the process. So this is this is really great work. It, obviously, it costs money. Like you said, you have sixty full time advisors and six hundred part time advisors. I mean, you're but you're a nonprofit, right? Like this, is, you're not asking for money from students or anything. Yeah, this is an entirely free service. Um, we're lucky enough to have the generous support of Bloomberg Philanthropies that underwrites this for students as well as a number of other philanthropic uh, supporters um, that allows us to do this work. And because it's virtual, because we're not flying advisors um, across the country, we're able to reach students in small towns and rural communities in all 50 states, um, but also to do so on the back of technology in a way that makes it cost effective um, and allow us to reach the kind of scale that we're at um, in a way uh, that is a a powerful investment of um, philanthropic support. Right. And, and so you say you're, you're reaching, I guess, uh, 12,000 students. Uh, I'm assuming that's a year you're, you're saying, or in all, y'all have reached about 12,000 students. Yeah. So for the class of 2020, high school class of 2020, we'll work with 12,000 students across the country. Um, and that uh, will be cumulatively over the course of six high school classes, um, just shy of 60,000 students. Um, that will um, have worked with uh, over the last five years. So, which makes me ask, how scalable is this? I mean, are you guys looking at the numbers and saying, "Wow, you know, we reached twelve thousand this year, but man, we'd like to reach twenty-four thousand or forty-eight thousand uh, next year"? Is this something that you think you can continue to scale? And you know, I guess if you have the funding, would you continue to grow like that? Yeah, I mean, I would say one of the big things that we're really focused on here is the learnings or are the learnings. And so one of the aspects of the work that I really love is the research and analysis that's kind of put behind this and the desire that Bloomberg um, and others have to really share what we're learning and how this can also be replicable. So while I think there definitely is some desire to scale and, and reach more students, there's also a strong desire to figure out what we've learned, what are best practices and how can um, other organizations or even schools that, you know, we've discussed that might not have um, the direct access to be able to provide this in exactly what it looks like. How can they take the best practices that we've learned over the years and apply them to um, to their programs? Who was it? It, it might have been one person or a team of people that said, you know, there, there is a shortcoming here. Like this needs to be done. We're missing students at universities. What was the driving force there? Yeah, I think the driving force for all of this work was the initial research done by Caroline Hoxby and Chris Avery um, in a paper called The Missing One-Offs that was published um, in, I guess, late 2012. Um, and then subsequent work that Caroline Hoxby um, and Sarah Turner at the University of Virginia did in the Expanding College Opportunity um, effort, which was a pilot program um, in which materials were shared with students who met this um, criteria, who sort of fit this profile, I should say. Um, and they saw statistically significant effects in sharing fee waivers and material on what um, match institutions would look like for this high achieving, low and moderate income cohort um, and saw some, um, some positive results. And so that was exciting for us to see. Um, and exciting um, for uh, Mayor Bloomberg to see uh, as well uh, as um, something that was really 
having an impact on um, top students across the country and allowing them to end up in the kinds of institutions that were a good match uh, for uh, the hard work that they had done in, in high school. Um, and so a series of conversations um, happened in the summer of 2014, sorry, the summer of 2013 um, and the fall of 2013 that led to the creation of the College Point effort um, and a desire to say, how can we really tackle this issue at scale? This feels like a solvable problem. Each year, there are roughly 70, 75,000 students across the country who fit this profile. Um, and uh, we feel like we can serve a significant um, population of them. So that was really the impetus um, initially is sort of saying there's this evidence base that shows that these students are not ending up at the kinds of institutions that they're qualified to attend. Um, and how can we design an intervention that uh, really moves the needle for students? And from the get-go, uh, to Alicia's point, we've really um, leveraged uh, uh, a, a, a approach to research that um, allows us to sort of see that impact. So we've partnered with Ben Castleman at the University of Virginia and the Nudge for Solutions Lab there to measure our impact sort of in each year of the, the College Point work. Um, and we're currently halfway through a randomized controlled trial um, that will allow us to really isolate what is the College Point effect on the students that we serve um, and understand how we're moving the needle in that way. And ultimately, I think that this, um, from a scale perspective, is something that we would love to be able to reach every student across the country who we feel like this can be a meaningful intervention for. And so to Alicia's point, understanding exactly which populations um, we can have uh, the most significant effect, and then to spread what we've learned, both um, the successes and the pitfalls, um, the mistakes that we've experienced over the course of the last five years with other practitioners um, in the space so that they can um, take uh, our learnings and apply them to their own circumstances uh, in service of supporting students who might not otherwise have access to the kind of resources that technology should make available um, across the country to, to anyone who wants them. If we have a teacher, and we probably do have a teacher in a high school somewhere listening to this, and, and they're probably thinking, you know, I've got this student, little Johnny, he meets all the marks, like he's he's making great grades, but you know what, he doesn't have a great parental support system. And I don't even know if he's anyone's helping him apply for colleges. What would you tell that teacher listening? I mean, can they, you know, push Johnny towards going to your website? What's What's the next step? Yeah, absolutely. They should certainly encourage him to check out our website. It's collegepoint.info. There's more information about the program and an ability for students to sign up right there um, to provide a little bit of information about themselves. Um, and then if they're eligible, um, we'll match them quickly with an advisor um, in that way. And I think we, we really think of our work as supplementing um, the great work that's happening in schools across the country. So while we're not directly partnered with schools to your earlier question, Nick. Um, we really see schools as being sort of the crucial place where so much of this work can happen. And if we can support counselors and teachers in schools with additional resources through an advisor, we see that as a huge win that allows counselors and, and teachers to have 
um, additional supports for students um, to help them in the process um, and uh, hopefully to, to help them feel like this process is a little bit more manageable for, for everyone involved. It, well, this may be a tough question for you to answer, but my co-host, she she tells me that um, things aren't like when I went to high school back in the 90s where my counselor would sit down with me and say, all right, you know, what are your thoughts on colleges? Where do you want to go? Um, you know, let's look at these different pamphlets. From what I understand, that doesn't really happen anymore. It maybe it does in some schools, and but not all schools. I mean, but do you know, like, is, is that happening? Are counselors in schools still having those conversations with each and every student? I think what we've seen is that counselors want to be having those conversations with students and just given the counselor to student ratios aren't in a position to be able to do that. So in so many um, lower income uh, schools, the ratios are uh, a thousand students to one counselor nationally. Um, our understanding of the average ca- uh, student to counselor ratio is 475 students to one counselor. So um, even a super uh, human counselor um, could could not reach every student in the way that that for for me too. Um, in my high school experience, that was the kind of support that I was lucky enough to to receive. And I think that we see College Point. Um, as an opportunity to help counselors in that way, help students who might not have um, the opportunity to access the kind of personalized, individualized support that they um, need in order to head to the kind of institution that is the best match and fit um, for them. And so uh, it's really trying to um, help counselors in that way and and to um, provide students with the sort of resources um, that they deserve, given um, all of their hard work. Well, well, I really love what you guys are doing. Uh, again, it's College Point. If anyone's listening, you can just Google that and, and it'll pop up uh, for you. Or the website, I guess it was collegepoint.info, correct? That's correct. And um, if somebody wants to check some uh, more information there. But I love that you're doing this and I love that you're doing it for free. It's a nonprofit. Um, and that means you have good intentions. Because um, really, let's be honest, this this could be a business model. We'll, you know, call us. We'll help you get into college. And just the fact that you guys are, are doing what's right here um, means a lot. Um, so, uh, Bryden and Alicia, are you ready for our pop quiz? Ready. Ready. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? I will say I think students should go for public speaking. I think math. But that's likely, yeah, likely because I'm very interested in the data area, so I think there's crucial skills there. All right. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I would say we're not teaching enough um, practical skills that are applicable to students' day-to-day lives and thinking about um, how they uh, function in the world. Yeah, I'd agree. Something along the lines of self-sufficiency. What does every child deserve? I think every child deserves um, every opportunity available uh, to any child. Um, and so much of our country is about the haves and have-nots. Um, and I think that our real push in education needs to be around leveling the playing field and, and giving the supports to students who um, historically haven't had them um, and making sure that those options uh, are available to each and every student and not just those who have the privilege or the resources to access them. Yep, I would say a conscious liberation. And so 
um, all of the freedoms kind of tied to what Brian said, all of the freedoms and the options that um, just come without limitations, without boundaries. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? I would say politics. I think that very often education becomes a political, it gets caught up in political agendas and we're not allowed to make it the kind of freedom that everyone deserves it to be. And I might agree with Alicia, but also say um, technology. I think technology is a sort of double-edged sword that can be a huge um, resource and boost for educators, but also can be seen as a silver bullet or in students and their interaction with technology um, can uh, really be a hindrance to the kind of outcomes that I think every teacher is striving for with his or her student. What's the best gift to give an educator? I think the best gift is to give an educator time. I think that educators tend to be so strapped, so overwhelmed, um, too much on um, their plates. And I think if we can um, find ways that allow educators to have more time to be able to do fewer things and focus on um, the aspects of their roles that are most impactful, um, that that is a huge gift that would improve um, educators' ability to uh, have um, the kinds of positive impacts on the students that they serve. I 100% agree. Which teacher changed your life? I'll say the, the teacher that comes to mind for me um, is Mr. Salem. And I, he was a teacher who taught this class called Multicultural Issues um, and then later became an assistant principal. And I worked with him very closely in high school, um, just spread awareness about the genocide going on in Darfur and all of these incredible things. But more than that, he just became someone that I could go to every day to talk about how things in the world are impacting me, how things at our high school are impacting me. Um, I could talk to him about the college application process, and he was just really that support for me and, and for a number of other students. And um, to this day, is someone that I still stay connected to. So um, just that relationship and, and support that we've talked about kind of throughout this podcast was so influential for me. And I would say Ms. Gardner, she was my kindergarten teacher and my third grade teacher. I was lucky enough to have her twice. Um, and she just instilled in me a lifelong um, love for learning, made learning from fun from the get-go. Um, and as someone who I, I feel like I really owe so much to in my own passion for education. And last question, pen or pencil? Pencil. Oh, no, I say pen. All right. Well, we'll leave it there then. Again, it's uh, Bryden, Sweeney, Taylor, and Alicia Rashid with College Point. We really appreciate all the great work you guys are doing. And thanks for sharing um, how it all works with us. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick. Thanks so much. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you. So if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button. And we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter. Just search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ortega. Go, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.